Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of one of our 2020 Elul study classes. The Leo Beck Education Center strives to inspire Israelis to live their lives committed to three key values. Pluralistic expression of Judaism, Tikkun Olam and social justice, and Israel being a shared society and a democracy for all its citizens and residents. We are a synagogue and actually we are also a community center, a JCC, as we like to say, a school, a shul, and a pool. Um, and maybe that's familiar in the LA context. In any case, um, we 2,400 students at our school started, started just two days ago because the 1st of September is when school started in Israel. And I think I'll tie in even a little bit later as to um, maybe the ethos of our school and our educational goals in relation to the topic that we're going to have a chance to discourse between ourselves, hopefully, certainly between ourselves and the text that I plan to bring around this tension between uh, reason and logic and rationale and faith and the world of belief. Um, I think just considering what I said a few minutes ago about the reality here in Israel, and unfortunately I understand it's not too dissimilar for you all, wherever you are, assuming everyone is in the United States, um, in terms of a sense of, you know, are we living in sky, we're living in a movie or some kind of crazy feeling around what's been going on since uh, really for us in Israel, it was just right after Purim in mid-March when uh, everybody understood the gravity of the situation and we had our, our lockdown. And I think you can observe in the media through what we're hearing from our spiritual leaders um, and in our own lives, this tension between wanting to make sense of everything that's going on and wanting to understand uh, why this is happening and how this is happening um, and um, and can we get an explanation? And there got to, there has to be some kind of a reason so we can make sense out of it, and then understand how to treat it, and you know, and create a solution. Um, at the same time, um, I know a lot of times, and it certainly happened to me during the period of time. It was over two months that we were in total shutdown and were limited to walking a hundred meters uh, from around outside our houses. Um, of just having to feel to myself, you know what? It's going to be fine. Things are going to work out. I just have to believe that, be the optimist that I was raised to be, and forget trying to understand everything. And that, for me at least, and I think we can all relate to that, is the kind of tension that um, that we're feeling and that we've been feeling. And since that the, the theme of this week is, is um, or has been balanced, I wanted to bring with you, for you this morning, three different texts, um, all from the land of Israel, um, uh, that speak to this tension between uh, uh, knowledge, reason, you know, rationale, and faith and and belief. Um, And I'd like to walk together through these texts. Um, I would be more than happy if anybody wants to ask any questions. I forewarn you that there'll be a few points that I'm going to ask some questions. Um, and if 
it's silent and I'll live with the silence <laughs> for a few seconds and then move on uh, with what I thought might be my, you know, perspectives and, and procession, uh, perspectives. Um, one footnote before I move forward, you can all hear from my accent that I probably was not born uh, in Israel. And so as was uh, mentioned uh, just in the pre-conversation, I grew up in Los Angeles in the Valley uh, at Temple Judean Tarzana. I uh, was very active in the reform youth movement, uh, both the youth groups and uh, summer camps. And uh, in a month from now, I'll be celebrating 37 years since I made Aliyah uh, from Los Angeles and went from the freeways of Los Angeles to Israel. Um, and I've been living here since then. I've been spending most of my time in what I call the tikkun olam business. I've had the fortune to be involved in development and educational roles in a wide variety of capacities around trying to make the state of Israel sort of the model vision uh, that we, from a values point of view, that we think that it has the potential to be. That maybe is the topic for another a presentation at another point that we can, can move forward. So I'm going to um, share my screen uh, and uh, put it forward here. I'm going to hope uh, that everybody can see this, the, the screen. Um, we'll be balancing between faith and reason this morning. I'm giving my perspective, not only my perspective, but three uh, different significant figures, in my opinion's perspective, coming uh, from Israel. And uh, we'll see where that takes us. And especially, I think, in the last test, the last text will help us with is as we look towards the high holidays, however we're going to be celebrating the high holidays this year, as we look towards them, um, a, um, a, I think the last text will give us kind of an interesting twist and a perspective towards uh, a, towards a looking at. Um, a, so a, just before I get started, can I see who's the far, okay? If I'm in Israel, this the base of this program more or less is in LA. Um, who's farthest from Los Angeles that's participating besides myself from Israel? Is there anybody not in Los Angeles? You can unmute yourself and say or raise your hand or text it to the chat box. I'm in the suburbs of New York City. This is Bob. Okay, great, Bob. Welcome. Anybody else outside of the LA area? Okay. Do we have anybody outside of the Beverly Hills or the West Side area? Well, technically, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm coming in from the Valley today, so. <laughs> All right. Anybody else outside of the West Side? Encino. Oh, boy. All right. I'm uh, ex-Temple Judea. <laughs> nice. Okay. I'm a real California. I'm a real. Okay. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm in Carborough, North Carolina. Wow, okay. I'm in Agoura Hills. All right, good morning, Agoura Hills. <laughs> okay, anybody else would like to share where they're coming from? If not, I'm going to happily move forward. Um, as I mentioned, there are really three questions that I'd like to, to touch this morning. How do we sense, make sense of the world today, moving from Elul into Tishrei? Can we find our answers through reason and rationale? Or is it simply we have to be optimistic, we have to have some kind of faith, um, be it in 
a deity or something transcendent, be it faith in nature, be it faith in humanity. We need that faith. And um, despite my American accent coming from you from Israel, maybe what, what experience, because we've dealt with a lot of crisis over the years, and I think one of the things that's unique about COVID-19 that has to be acknowledged is the facts, fact that in previous times it was fires, well, not fires, but missiles and so forth here in Israel, and we're looking to Jewish communities outside of Israel. Today, not only are all of us you know, flattened out in terms of where we are, in a lot of cases, uh, certainly in regards, for example, for the United Kingdom, the impact from a, a fatality on the Jewish community in the, in the, in the UK has been greater than on the Jewish community in Israel. So it's not even, so Israel, you know, and we're a country organized now. So it's, it's a very different dynamic in terms of how we relate to Israel and Jewish communities outside of Israel, which is also unique and needs to be recognized in terms of uh, how this COVID-19 uh, pandemic is playing out. And again, I'm thrilled that Jew at Home exists so we can, preserve our relationship uh, while we can't visit each other, be it all of you coming to us in Haifa or me coming to you out wherever you are. So on that note, the first text that I'd like to, to bring for us to discuss actually takes us back to rabbinic times. Um, for those of you who are not familiar, uh, during the time of the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are the first books in the oral law that were written down, and I know that sounds like a paradox, but according to the tradition at Sinai, Moshe, Moses received both the written and the oral law, but then the oral law was eventually written down, and the Mishnah was the first book, and the Talmud the second book. Um, uh, there are other ways of looking at how uh, Judaism evolved in terms of its dialectic and dialogue around text. Um, at the same time, the Mishnah and the Talmud were going on in the latter part, there were also other commentary books, both around halakha, around Jewish law, and also around agadah, around ethical messages and stories that we can learn from uh, on each of the five books of the Humash, of the five books of Moses. Um, and this a particular text is a story coming from Exodus Rabbah, which means, or Shemot Rabbah, which is rabbinic commentary or stories on the book of Exodus. And this story starts, as many do, um, in the land of Israel. And I think that's important to, to realize. Um, we are in the land of Israel. And um, one of the rabbis is relating a story. And I'll be happy to read it. Um, it happened that one of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's students went overseas. I'll explain in a second why I put that in quotes. And returned wealthy. And his students saw him. And they were envious of him and wanted themselves to go overseas. And Rabbi Shimon knew. Okay? So um, I've always find it interesting every time I look at this text again to realize that 2,000 years ago, the sense that's what's been the case certainly in modern times, and I think throughout our, our people's history, that uh, generally there's a smaller group of the Jewish people living in the land of Israel, and they don't have it so easy economically and otherwise, and Jews that are outside of Israel, be it in Babylon or, you know, in Spain or today in North America or other communities, have it better. And so 2,000 years ago, we see that what might happen today 
or would have happened maybe 30 years ago before internet where somebody goes overseas. And the reason I put it in quotes, because the Hebrew is chutz la'aretz, which literally means outside of the land. Um, but in, in the things translation, even though they might not be over a sea, overseas really refers to it. And they came back wealthy. Of course, the students were jealous. And uh, that already is our indication through the text that the economic situation in the land of Israel at that time, the time of the Mishnah and the Talmud, was not as good as it was outside of Israel, and they wanted to go. Rabbi Shimon, as an educator, as a teacher, and those of you who have ever been teachers or educators, you know, the good news is at least Rabbi Shimon knows what's going on. So if anybody's familiar with the text, we'd hope you will uh, don't do any spoilers. And I'd like to open up now, if anybody wants to share, if you were in Rabbi Shimon Bar Yerchai's shoes, and you saw and you saw your students jealous and wanting to leave you and go overseas for gold, and you're trying to teach them Torah, what would you do if you were Rabbi Shimon? I'm happy to hear anybody's suggestions and responses. I think I would tell them to go because they should see that things maybe aren't as good as as where they are, that that they should realize. I mean, when I leave America and come home, I realize how great we have it here. And I wouldn't want to make Aliyah because I love it here. And I don't blame you, though, for having made Aliyah. But I, I think that some, it's better to satisfy yourself that things are just as good, if not better, where you are than having to leave. Uh, Barbara, thanks for sharing that. I think it's, it's, it's interesting what you're saying. Obviously, there was the student who got wealthy came back. He didn't stay out of the land of Israel. And um, this idea, well, you know what? As an educator, I shouldn't hide it from them. They really should see. They should see for themselves. Anybody else would like to share what they might do if they are in Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's shoes? I would, this is Bob, I would ask the student who returned to get up in front of the students with Rabbi Shimon and talk about everything that happened to him from when he left to when he came back. Because maybe they just see the wealth, but they have no idea of the difficulties that were involved in that or about how that wealthy student now feels about what happened. Okay, there's nothing more effective. Thanks, Bob, for sharing that. There's nothing more effective than peer pressure sometimes, and a smart educator knows how to facilitate that process. Anybody else would like to share what what they might do? I do. Uh, Maybe Rabbi Shimon would, would ask his students to take a step back and sort of define what their goals in life are and how they define success and put that up against what's going on in front of their eyes at the moment. Okay. Stephen, you're not not far off the target, actually. Not that there's a target that we're trying to head towards. <laughs> you're a little bit closer to what actually the story says that Rabbi Shimon did. So let's we'll reflect on what you said when we when we move on. Anybody else want to share? If you can hear me. Yes. This is Casey Stern from LA, uh, Temple Beth Am. Hi. I would think that um, they would apply, that the rabbi would teach his students to apply that to where they are and bring commerce to their, to their town rather than go out of the way. This way they could have their own laws, they could have their own uh, 
you know, their own way that they, that they uh, use all this information. So um, I think you're, certainly if we look at these issues in modern times, and we know that definitely, I think to this day, in a lot of fields, in academics in certain fields, um, you can get ahead outside of Israel in ways that you can't in Israel. The fact that we have become the startup nation, at least, you know, means that maybe uh, there is a way of looking at these students. I wouldn't say they're going to do a startup um, at the times of the Talmud, but th- there is that idea that, that let's do, let's make, you can have wealth here in Israel and also stay in, in the land of Israel. So let's, um, Rabbi Shimon, I want to show you now what, what the story tells us that he did. And I want to look at it in the light of uh, our, our topic of balancing um, faith and reason. And uh, some of your responses also related to sort of you know, logical things. I think, Kathy, yours also is, okay, if it's wealth you're interested in, then how can you get wealth? That's a very systematic, logical way of approaching it. Also with Barbara, if you want to, you're going to make a decision where you're going to live. Objectively, you need to see, compare the facts, and you make your decision based on those areas. Rabbi Shimon is going to go the other route, probably a little bit closer to Stephen, who said to us, let's look at our goals in life in the bigger picture. He has one very big goal. So what happened? Rabbi Shimon took his students out to a valley. And he called out to the valley, 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 not the San Fernando Valley, but the valley in, in the north of the land of Israel, fill up with gold coins. And the valley began to fill up with gold coins. He said to them, if it's gold you want, here is gold, take it. Of course, you can imagine that he had no expectation that any of his students were going to go and take the gold. Um, maybe there was always the one who would have done it, but he certainly appears to be threatening them as if they take that gold, there's going to be a very, very big price that they're going to have to pay. Okay? Um, But we can see here that he has to get them out of the classroom, which is kind of interesting, go out into nature. Okay? And he has to perform magic. He has to um, leave the rationale and to draw the powers, the strong spiritual powers that he has to show them the point he wants to make them on, a, on another level. And what is his response? He says to them, but you should know that you are taking from your portion in the world to come because the reward of Torah is only in the world to come. Now, what is interesting um, First of all, I want to make sure the, it's clear what's happening here. Um, he's basically tempting them to say, okay, if you want, you know, he's calling their bluff, if you will. If you want the money, it's money you want, go. If you want to go take the money in the valley, if you want to leave the land of Israel and not study Torah with me, go. But you know you're paying a price. Okay? And what's interesting about the price that he's asking them to pay it's not in the here and now, but it's in the future, the world to come. Um, we don't, you know, the, the, there's a lot of, uh, there could be a lecture on its own about what is the meaning of ha'ulam haba, the world to come in rabbinic texts. Um, and it's very different than the heaven, hell kind of a Judeo-Christian 
uh, concepts that we might be exposed to. Um, and it's used, the concept of Lama Ba, also in, in many different ways. Um, sometimes it's used literally, like the world to come at the end of days. And sometimes it's used during, to indicate um, the value of my life over and above just the material, over and above just the mundane. Um, and the bigger purpose that I have, both on the continuum in history and for those who believe, also as part of the, the God's design of the Jewish people's journey from creation through revelation and eventually to redemption. Um, and he's saying, basically, he's dangling in front of them this uh, carrot, if you will, or a stick. Um, it's the carrot and the stick, I guess you might look at it. Um, and that's what he's doing. Um, uh, uh, and there's no question that this is all about faith. Uh, this is all about faith. Um, he's appealing to their to their sense of faith, how strongly they believe um, in in you know in in what he believes is what's right. But it's more it's not right or wrong. It's really a sense of is this is how my worldview that I live in. Um, Anybody would like to make any comments on the Rabbi Shimon's tactics and what he does here? Is it surprising? Do you actually maybe like it and identify with it? Um, I, I personally think that I get more out of studying now than I will after I die. I don't really believe that we exist in the world after we die, that we should do what we can here. And if you can learn here, that's great. I still think you should go out and learn. And I think travel enhances your life and your person. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm surprised at the statement that the reward of Torah is only in the world to come. Um, I, I was, I've always thought that Torah study was so that we could live the correct life here on earth. <laughs> it is also. It is also, and I'm going to relate to that and how that how that works out. Anybody like to share some thoughts? So I'm going to share three reasons why I really like this text before we move on to the next one. Third reason I'm going to start with, because it relates, I think, to what Stephen was saying. In Jewish tradition, we have a long history of what we call Ha'ulama Zeh, or this world, and Ha'ulama Ba, the world to come. And... What's interesting is that they're not one on the count of the other. It's not really an either or in terms of our expectations for the kind of lives that we're going to live. Um, ironically, maybe not ironically, but ironically, the uh, modern Zionist pioneer who both worked the land, but also at nighttime wrote books on Jewish thought and philosophy, Aaron David Gordon, Aleph Dalit Gordon, who was uh, in the early 20th century, was on Deganya, but also wrote a very, very detailed philosophy. He uses this concept and modernizes it and basically uses the phrase the here and now in compared to the eternal. And the here and now is living our daily lives. And the eternal is not necessarily Barbara what happens after we die, but the eternal is the idea that there is some meaning to our lives beyond ourselves. It could be connected to involvement in a religious belief. It could be involved 
and committing yourself to fulfilling an ideology. Um, I know these are, these are pre, these are modern and not postmodern phraseologies, for those of you who are more familiar with that, but Gordon said that if we only live in the here and now, our life has no meaning. It's just mundane. There's no purpose to it. We might as well just, you know, no. And, and having the here, the, 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 the eternal is what gives our life purpose. And each one of us um, has the responsibility to decide what that eternal purpose might be. Belonging to a community, it could be belief in God, it could be our way of life, our, you know, tikkun olam, Zionism, whatever, you know, feminism, whatever it is, but it's the, the ideology beyond ourselves gives our life a sense of purpose, family, okay? What Gordon says is that if our life is only in the here and now, it's meaningless. We're here, we're gone, chemicals. But if our life is only in the world to come, then we're going to live ourselves miserable all the time. And his challenge, and I think that's also what Rabbi Shimon's expectations would be, is both to live your daily life knowing that you're also part of something bigger than yourselves and not give up on, on either one of them. The second reason why I like this text, because it juxtaposes between material and spiritual, um, we know we need both. We can't live without either. But here there's a strong sense of Torah versus gold. Okay. And I, you know, and as much as we'll talk about it in a second in the, in the second text we're going to look at, but there's the tension of that. And the third reason I like this text because it is on the issue of Israel diaspora relations or relations between Jewish communities around the world. A few generations after Rabbi Shimon, there will be Torah students in the land of Israel going to Babylon, not for money. You know why they're going? Because that's where the best yeshivas are, to study Talmud. And the same way that some people believe today that there's more creativity in Jewish life outside of Israel than there is in inside in Israel, at that time it certainly was the case. And so this this text, I think, brings to surface the tension um, around uh, our communities around the world. And I share it as somebody who's creating educational programs through my school where I'm speaking English in Israel because I made Aliyah, working with Hebrew-speaking students, and I'm collaborating with someone who happens to be in the Bay Area, who she's an Israeli who's been living there as long as I've been living in, in Israel. And she's working with kids who, uh, English might be their first language, but they also have Hebrew. And we're trying to build these bridges somehow. So that's also another reason why I like this text. But let's go back to the juxtaposition between the material and the spiritual. Um, and we're going to move forward now to our next text. This text was written by the founder of the Leo Beck Education Center. Um, Rabbi Dr. Mayor Elk himself was a student of Dr. Rabbi Leo Beck. Um, and a... Both of them were living in Germany in the early 1930s. I don't know about all of you, but I could not imagine what it would be like to live in Germany in the early 1930s, especially like Rabbi Leo Beck was, a leader of the Jewish community and having a sense of what was going on and having the dilemma 
do I stay with those Jews that are remaining here in Berlin? Or since I know what's going on, I leave. Rabbi Leil stayed, he survived Theresienstadt, and went on to be one of the leaders of the World Union for Progressive Judaism and buried at a Reform Synagogue in, at Eilith in um, Garland, Gardens in London. His student, Rabbi El, made Aliyah, came to Haifa, and in 1938, just 82 years ago, founded the Leo Beck Education Center. We started as a kindergarten for German refugee children um, and evolved into a high school. Um, and we're one of the largest pluralistic institutions in Israel today. Um, and we're very much guided by the ethos of uh, our founder, um, which I took uh, one kind of text, which considering the fact that he wrote this sometime between 1950 and 1965, when we read it today, it's pretty amazing, but I'm going to ask a, sen- a second the context. So Rabbi Elk taught us, everyone feels it. This failure of technolo- technical civilization in spite all of its splendid accomplishments. We have not been happier by the achievements of technique, he means technology. Life may be easier, more comfortable, but men's souls, and I apologize on the lack of gender-sensitive text that wasn't an issue, unfortunately, back then, but people's souls have become emptier. We can fly up to the skies, but the heavens remain closed to us. What have we learned? All the knowledge acquired has not deepened our mind, has not opened our spirit for the real values of life beings. We have lost our faith, and we have found nothing to replace it. Um, this text is written um, in a couple particular historical contexts. One, obviously, if we look at the late 19th and early 20th century as the progressive period of modern history, where the optimism of how we're going to cure all the diseases and solve all the problems um, was where people were at. And following uh, World War II, and this would have been influenced by that, there's a big amount of disillusionment with uh, modernity and with the progress. Um, Certainly uh, someone like Rabbi Elk having been so aware of the trauma of the Holocaust and, you know, it must be said that we had pogroms for many years in different ways um, as Jews, but the Holocaust could only have happened in modern times simply because of both the technology uh, that existed and the fact that we were now in nation states where a government could adopt and erase a genocide as, an, as its government ideology. And those are two modern phenomenon um, that can only happen then. And so Elk is writing very much out of a disillusionment um, uh, with the modern period of time. But still, um, it's hard to imagine, like when I read the text, it's like, you know, we're how many years, 50 years plus since he wrote the text? Have we learned anything from what he said? Um, Or have things gotten worse? Um, I'd like to open up now. And maybe if anybody wants to share in their lives how they feel technology, does technology help you in making sense of what's going on? Or is technology is an, is an, an obstacle, like Rabbi Elk wrote here, is it an obstacle to your ability to find meaning and what with the spirit or what is important to you in any way? Having been born the year that your institute was started, 
Um, I lived through the war and was brought up with the, my mother was involved with National Council of Jewish Women and we started, we might, as a kid, we went down to the docks to help the, uh, the DPs that were coming in by boat. I remember giving bags of toys and, and, uh, and candy to the kids that were coming in because they'd had nothing. Frankly, we thought we didn't have much because during the war we were, we thought we were deprived, but we found out, we learned later that we weren't so deprived. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that I had a nicer childhood than the kids today have. I think there's too much technology, unfortunately. We're too tied to our phones. Um, and we're too tied to things like texting instead of talking to people. I, I think that the world was in many ways easier when I was younger and when mm-hmm. I went, went through schools as a Thank you for sharing, Barbara. Thank you for sharing. Yes, Steve? Um, I think in sort of in broad terms, we have the same issues now as we had in the 50s. Uh, that is to say, technology is, is, uh, has, is still becoming even more important in our life. Um, I think that it's, it's become such a big thing now, though, in, the, in, the, in our current decade, that it's even... It, you know, sort of as a, as a percentage of our life, it's even it's even more important. And I and I think that that has um, we we there's something of I wouldn't call it a backlash, but at least a reconsideration of of technology in our lives now that probably wasn't going on in the 50s and 60s because it was rather so exciting and new and 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 uplifting. Then we we probably didn't see it necessarily as having negative consequences. Uh, or at least we weren't experienced with it yet enough to know. But now I think we are experienced enough with it to know that we have to be careful about the use of technology. Um, I'm, I'm a science fiction fan, and, and I, I, science fiction novels are always a precursor of what's, in my mind, I'm always a precursor of what's going on in society. And there's been an awful lot in the last several decades written about the, the possible downfalls of technology. In the post-war period, all the science fiction writing was was about how we were going to was as you were saying before as how we were going to solve the world and the universe's problems with with science and technology so i think hopefully this second this this time around we're will be somewhat more measured and smarter about the whole thing thank you anybody else would like to share okay so um it's kind of interesting in terms of the context of uh, our school for those of you who visited, you may remember, and those of you who haven't visited, when you come to Israel Next, when this whole Mishagas is over, I certainly personally invite you. Um, and I didn't bring a picture on purpose, so you'll have to see it yourself. But just outside of our library, we have a vitrage that is in the shape of the tablets of the Ten Commandments, which of course represent both our spiritual and ethical values that we need to live out. There is a spiral in the middle full of texts uh, on social justice and tikkun olam. And you have to stand from afar, and the spiral is in the shape of the DNA symbol. And it's really a message to us, to our students, that you have to have a connection to your Jewish heritage and values. You have to have both spiritual and a material realm. Um, You have to be guided by morals and ethics, and as we 
continue to be the startup nation. Um, and certainly our high school has the, one of the largest physics programs in the country. And I'm proud to say we have more women in 10th and 11th grade studying physics than young men. Um, but as we do that, we need to know that we need to be harnessing this technology and not letting it um, used to our detriment. Um, and I think today, looking at this text, it's not only that, from my point of view, that technology is, uh, um, you know, a distraction from uh, to our lives at all levels, but also it's an um, it's a becoming a detriment, especially the negative sides of technology and their impact on the environment. Um, at the same time, I do want to, and I'll I'll even be the Israeli cynicist cynic, because I've been living in Israel long enough to be a little bit cynical, um, it always amuses me um, when I see YouTube videos or Facebook posts about people uh, preaching the um, negative aspects of uh, technology or someone on a TED Talk trying to say how to leave social media, when in reality those people are using to get across the messages that they're you know, so it's kind of, um, but I think there is some uh, problem here because we couldn't be doing what we're doing now had it not been for technology. And um, hopefully this will have been some kind of a meaningful way to start your day and maybe even to give some light onto your Elul and certainly towards your Tishrei and the high holidays. Um, uh, but that could have only happened because of the technology. And so I can't, so I think that we can't, you know, throw the baby out with the water, whatever the expression is. Um, in Hebrew, it's a different expression. Um, but I think this idea of how can we use technology to enable uh, faith experiences as difficult as that may be, I think is important enough to consider. Um, we now also, whereas Cook wrote in a modern or beginning of postmodernity, Today, we really find ourselves in the world that is entirely postmodern. And when I was thinking about this lesson and talking about reason and the, the um, search for facts, since this whole thing around fake news and, you know, everybody can write a Wikipedia entry and, and this postmodern multi-narrative world that we live in, I don't know how anybody, I mean, it's clear that there's no pure rational anymore. And I think that's one of the struggles that we have, um, a, or that it's very difficult to remain pure, purely rational and purely based on reason, because someone's always going to give you the opposite. And at the same time, I think we're also in a what we're calling a post-secular world, um, where in a lot of ways, both in Israel, we're seeing the so-called secular Israelis ultimately uh, demonstrating hybrid ways of their Judaism. They might call themselves secular, but they believe in some kind of God or they do participate in the Jewish holidays. Um, so we're seeing a lot of dynamism and movement in that area. And the last text I'd like to bring, uh, of course, being sensitive to the time because I like to finish on time, is actually a more modern text in, in Israel from Avraham Shlonsky. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of uh, Shlonsky. He's an Israeli poet at the level of Bialik. For those of you who've heard of Bialik, one of the really founding uh, figures in uh, culture in the state of Israel, or in the land of Israel, in the state of Israel. Um, and he 
he wrote poems, he wrote plays, um, and he's gonna, um, I know where NBA is going on, UFC is going on, NFL and MLB, the, the, the baseball, I have no idea if it's going on or not, bubbles, no bubbles, but um, uh, I think Shlonsky is going to throw a little bit of a curveball, and let's try to really grasp it, um, because I think it might shed some new light on how we live the high holidays. So he talks about religion, okay? This is how, remember, we're talking about the balance between faith and reason, okay? Shlonsky defines religion as follows. 613 commandments and peace in mind and satisfaction of someone who has found God and Torah and is confident and who knows that their task in the moral spiritual world is to carry to implement uh, ritual, the defined laws. And I don't think it matters here which denomination you belong to, whether you have an orthodox, uh, conservative, reform, reconstructionist, emerging, and if, or post-denominational approach towards Judaism as a framework, but as a system, he's looking at the system. He does a wordplay in Hebrew, Pulchan Aruch, and Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch is a the last codification of Jewish law that was officially done at the end of the Middle Ages. Um, it's considered to be today within halachic circles sort of the base we go back to in terms of uh, Jewish law. Pulchan Aruch, Aruch Aruch, it's a wordplay. Pulchan is a word for ritual. But here is uh, Shlonsky defining religion as almost like religion is, re- is reason. Religion is a system. Religion is certainty. Religion gives me, uh, it's, it's for those of you who are familiar with the tension in prayer between, in Hebrew we say kavanah and keva, fixed prayer and our intent, okay? He's saying religion is fixed for us. It gives us a framework. And if we can, and we need that framework, um, in order to have stability in our lives. So as opposed to up now into now where we would associate religion with faith and maybe science and knowledge, all this are part of what is reason, now Shlonsky has religion on the side of reason, on the side of logic, on the side of clarity. Okay? So... For Shlonsky, what is the opposite then of religion going to be? It's opposite he calls faith. Shlonsky, faith is having no peace of mind and no confidence, living in a storm and having the ever-ending anxiety of someone who is searching for God, someone who complains, okay? In the crisis that we're in now, according to Shlonsky, a person, is asking the bigger questions. Why is this happening? Not to understand them uh, logically, but as out of a sense of faith. Um, someone who expects and believes and demands that an ideal, uh, from a secular, he grew up, of course, traditional but secular orientation, but that ideal has to be revealed okay? as fully as possible. Um, it's, it's interesting, uh, the tension here between religion and faith, for those of you who are familiar, on Yom Kippur morning, traditionally in, uh, in the Torah reading, we read about the uh, goat 
One is sacrificed and the other one is sent out to the desert symbolically to carry our sins, which is a ritual act. People need rituals um, in their lives psychologically to have some kind of sense, the same way we need routine. Okay, But that same time in the morning, in the Haftarah, from the book of Isaiah, What's this fast? Okay? He's saying, we have an ideal of social justice, of making the world a certain way. I believe, I have faith in that world, and I'm not that faith. And as difficult as it is for me, I will not uh, give up that faith, even though it puts me in an internal struggle of tension between, in Hebrew, what we call matsui and ratsui, or our reality and what we think it should be. But the person is a person that wants to live that tension always. It's a very kind of interesting switch here uh, that Shlonsky did for us. And I think it puts an interesting light as we look towards the high holidays. Um, In the high holidays, are we looking for an experience that we really need now because of all this instability we've had with COVID and the pandemic, that we want that familiarity of the ritual, the melodies that we know, and that, that framework, that structure that religion can provide us, that we know there's the Yisker service and the sermon and however your service is built, the familiarity, or are we looking for some kind of experience during the high holidays where we really can devote times to ourselves and thinking about what's important to us, what we believe in, what our ideals are, um, both as individuals and as communities as in a people, and really kind of the cheshbon nefes, the, the, the eternal searching that we are invited to do, um, which is beyond the prayer book. It's in the silence. It's in our own spiritual experience with ourselves or with our community, or for those of us who believe with whatever that is. And I think through Shlonsky, uh, we can look at, um, you know, we can kind of look at it as a different way and a different way of kind of going in towards the high holidays. Shlonsky was the kind of person who um, dealt with opposites. One of his most famous quotes of Israel about modern Zionism is, we came here to start from the beginning. And we dared to do that because, how could we dare to start from the beginning? As you know, modern Zionism in a lot of cases wanted to forget all of Judaism up until then and start anew and reconnect with the Bible Shlonsky said, we can dare to start from the beginning and create Judaism anew in the land of Israel because we know we're continuing something that's been going on. And it's, how do we hold together at the same time the fact that we're creating something anew, but we're part of a continuum, is this crazy talent that somehow in Israel we've developed where for us closing down in COVID-19 wasn't a problem because we show oftentimes how flexible human beings can be, and you could be walking down the street and everything is normal, and in a split second, it's not. And somehow in Israel, we've developed this extreme level of adaptability. Um, and we don't might sometimes deal with authority very well, but maybe that's an advantage. But, you know, we're able to live with the tension of opposing uh, experiences and somehow you know, come out of it maybe more stronger. Um, I'd love to open up uh, if there are any comments that anybody want to make sort of as we wrap up 
uh, on, this, you know, on this morning that we're having together. And Adam, you'll be sort of in charge of seeing when we really need to stop. So I'm opening it up. If I may. Uh, I love this, the Shlonsky definitions. I think if, I wonder if you did an experiment and put the definitions without the words in front of a hundred people, how many of them would switch them around and, and very comfortably, you know, call the first one faith and the second one religion. I think it would be 50-50. I really would, I think, uh, so I, I really, I really like what he's done here and he's really made me think about it. Um, I guess, <laughs> One of, one of the things I think about when I, when I look at all of all of these issues, all these texts, is is uh, what would Moses Maimonides think about all of this? You know, there's a guy who spent a good portion of his life trying to reconcile faith and reason, and I wonder if he was alive with us today. It, you know, I, I wonder what he would say. Interesting thought. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, anybody else would share? Yeah, when I was around 20, the rabbi, or my rabbi uh, back in those days, gave a sermon on Yom Kippur about do we have to believe in God or just have faith in God? And his argument was that scientists have trouble believing something they can't see. And I was on a scientific course, I'm a physician, and I really had trouble believing and had the idea that that I that there is a God when you can't see Him, but I could, I could deal with the the idea that there's a faith that there may be something higher than us, out out there, and I think that I probably wouldn't be as religious as I am if he hadn't given that sermon, because that resonated to totally with me. So I disagree with what Klonsky said that faith has no real benefit, because faith is what made me feel religious and have gotten more religious, actually, since my father died um, 35 years ago. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Barbara. I think that, um, you know, I think that Slonsky doesn't, you know, I think Slonsky sees faith as an option. Uh, you know, but, but it's, you know, he's, it's, it's a different way, way of life. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.